0: Go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 3. Yeah, a little bit of a surprise. So seeing as how we've been going through the book of Acts verse by verse, that's our normal Sunday study, and we just got done in Acts chapter 20, which is a large chunk of that section is Paul specifically addressing the leadership or the elders, pastors, shepherds of the church of Ephesus as he's kind of pouring into them things he's learned in ministry and serving Jesus that he wanted them to know, knowing that was going to be the last time he saw them seem fitting that we kind of just take a Sunday to kind of talk about what the word says about um Biblical roles of leadership in the church like specific ones uh, elders and deacons Those are two things that the bible specifically talks about some other There's other areas for leadership within the church But those are two that are specifically defined As to what they're there entail and, and what the qualifications or what the characteristics are Of those that hold those positions So we're going to spend some time talking about those in first timothy three Especially since we're as a church family we're going to be doing a deacon selection, as we see in the word today at the end of service. And so we want to have a good understanding of what a deacon is in the church and what um, the godly characteristics are that God says that deacons should have before we do that deacon selection. So again, go ahead and turn to 1 Timothy 3. We're going to be in the first 13 verses. And just to give you some background on what's happening in this section of scripture, um, 1 Timothy is 1 of three epistles written by Paul, who we're following um, in the early church through the book of Acts. The other two being um, 2 Timothy and Titus. But these are three epistles that he wrote towards the end of his life to specifically um, encourage um, or edify or build up uh, young people or men that he had basically apprenticed or he had discipled and that he had kind of left in charge of ministries that he had started, that he knew would continue on in, in serving in those ministries. And he's just writing this specific letter to a young pastor named Timothy, who should sound somewhat familiar because we see Timothy accompanying Paul um, through the book of Acts. And Paul very much saw him as, as a spiritual son, somebody that his was his protege, if you will, because he was somebody that he specifically invested and in, in discipled. And Timothy was a young, gifted pastor that had been assigned... To lead the church of Ephesus, who we just saw in Acts 20, Paul addressing the leadership of. Eventually, Timothy was left in charge to be the pastor of this church. And in this letter, we see Paul address um, some order in worship, uh, specifically in that church. Some things were out of order in their worship of the Lord. And then there's some doctrinal correction because they were dealing with false teachers, And if you remember, that was one of the specific things that Paul warned there in that last section, last week, I think it was last week, maybe it was the week before, in Acts 20, where he said, be careful, because here's what's going to happen. There's going to be wolves that come in from outside, they're going to seek to devour you, and then there's also going to be people that rise up from within, they're going to twist scripture to draw people away from God to themselves. So he warned them of this very thing, yet it still happened, and they allowed it into the church and Paul's writing Timothy to address these things. And one of the specific things that he counsels Timothy on is church leadership, leadership specifically the, the character or the qualifications that are required for elders and deacons in God's church, which is the section we're going to be in today. So let me pray really quick, and we got... It doesn't seem like a lot, but it's a whole lot to talk about. So um, I'll try to get through it all here in a timely manner. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again... Um, Lord, some of us probably come from different backgrounds where different things have been said about church leadership and how that looks and what that entails, Lord. But at the end of the day, we don't want to believe what we believe because somebody else told us or because it feels right to us. It only matters what you say in your word. And so, Lord, um, we want to reflect the things we see in your word, including leadership within the church, um, because if they... If this is what you intended for the church, the early church, this is what you intend for us now. And this is where, where things worked really good back then, is as you were adding people and people were getting saved and the word was going out. So it stands a reason that if it worked then, it's going to work now, because you're consistent. You don't change, and you're a God of order. And so we want to look at the examples that we see you give us in your word and implement and follow these in our own lives. And we know, Lord, whether we're one of us as a christian because these are attributes that ultimately reflect who you are and that we want to reflect in our lives so people can see you in them lord so i pray this would be an edifying or a strengthening message from your word as we look at these things that you value uh, in in us and all of us and we look to you and your holy spirit to help us live these things out in our lives in jesus name amen all right So it says here in verse one, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires or desires to the office of overseer, some of your translations probably use the word bishop. He desires a noble or honorable task. So the idea of the word used for overseer here is somebody that oversees or watches over the spiritual health of the church or the people that are a part of God's family. In the same position, it was discussed in Acts 20, as we just looked at over this last month. And it's also mentioned in 1 Peter 5 and Titus 1, where it is referred to as an elder, a bishop, or a shepherd. And some of your translations probably use the word pastor instead of shepherd as well. With all those names being interchangeable, as they're all describing different aspects of the same position Within God's church the Greek word used for elder. It's not speaking of years in existence, but rather Maturity thus it is describing the character of the man God calls to the position not somebody that's necessarily old But somebody that is spiritually mature The Greek word used for bishop or some of your translations use the word overseer Carries the idea of someone that oversees thus it is describing the ministry role of the man that God calls to this position or what it is that they do, a person called to watch over God's people. And then the Greek word used for pastor or some of your translations say shepherd, meaning someone who feeds or takes care of. Thus, it describes the methods used by the man God calls to this position, someone that feeds God's people through the teaching of God's word and takes care of them. Now, Some denominations, and maybe single guys have been brought up in this, teach that these three titles are different positions within the church and that elders are subordinate to pastors and that pastors are subordinate to bishops. But God's word doesn't really appear to convey any type of hierarchy in those terms unless you're making presumptions or assumptions that it does. It doesn't state that anywhere. So they all appear to be talking about the same position, just using different terms, describing different parts of what that position entails. Now, Acts 20 told us that it's the Holy Spirit that makes someone an overseer in the church, or somebody. it's the Holy Spirit that calls or anoints or gifts someone to do this work. And Titus 1 tells us that it's a position that's appointed by the church leadership as they notice those people operating in that gift. And as such, people that are called to be elders in the church are typically doing what an overseer does long before they ever get the title. Basically, they're those that are pouring into people. They're teaching God's word to people. They're discipling people. They're involved in available in God's work at the church, and he's using them in a mighty way in those different roles or in that specific role of an overseer of the church. So it isn't something that you earn or you work your way up to or volunteer or appoint yourself to like maybe you would in the world in a career. It's not like that. It's not the way it works in God's church. It's a position that God calls you to and he gifts you to, and then people in the church recognize that calling on your life, specifically the church leadership who appoints you to operate in that thing that you're already doing because of God's gifting or call on your life. Amen? Now, Paul also tells us in 1 Timothy 2 that this is a position that is reserved for men. And I want to take the time to go through this because, again, some of you guys may have been brought up with something different. And I just want to clarify this because... um, People hear that and, and they can say, well, I don't agree with that. Well, what I would encourage you is, why don't you agree with that? Is it because somebody else told you something different, which isn't a good reason to believe anything? Or is it because you actually know what God's word says? All right, because that's what matters. Now, First Timothy 2, uh, Paul talks about this specifically in verses 11 through 15. Paul tells us in verse 11, women should learn quietly and submissively. Now, the Greek word used there for submissively was often used as a military term that spoke of submitting to authority in the same sense as what Romans 13, one through 4 tells us when Paul's telling us to submit to the governing authorities over us. All right, So it isn't being used in the sense of inferiority, but rather in the sense of submitting to those in higher authoritative roles and not challenging them which again is important to understand because people automatically jump into this thinking of like, okay, well, now you're saying women are inferior to men. No, 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 that's not what the Bible ever teaches in anything that it's talking about when it's talking about roles of men and roles of women. If you go back to Genesis 2 and you understand why women was created, why does it say that? What was the one purpose that it specifies there that a woman was created? a helpmate but why because the man by himself was not good god gets done making everything else and it's just great and dandy and he sees this man he's like "Uh oh he's lacking something so i'm gonna make a woman that completes him where he's lacking all right so it's important to understand that because everything else when you're talking about these things it's never about inferiority it's about roles because God's a God of order. And he's like, I made women to do these roles because this is where I know they'll be most blessed. And I made men to do these roles because I know they will be most blessed in these roles. All right? So in the same way, that's what's being talked about here. And it goes on in verse 12, this 1 Timothy 2 again. And it says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. So again, verse 12 is talking about women listening quietly. And I've heard people try to, kind of, well, historically, this is what was going on. Just always let Scripture define itself. It says here, let them listen quietly. So that ties verse 12 to verse 11. Paul's talking about the same thing, and he's talking specifically about a role that involves teaching and having authority. And best we can tell from the New Testament, the the biblical role that involves teaching and having authority is an elder or pastor. So that is what he's specifically addressing here. This role is elder or pastor, as women in this church were operating in a role or challenging those in a role that God has specifically ordained for men. Which means that it does not saying that women can't teach, all right? And we've got lots of gifted women teachers in this church that operate in that capacity in, in applicable venues or whatnot. It also doesn't mean that women can't be in a leadership role, okay? Because... There are gifted women leaders in this church and they operate in that role as well. But what it is specifically addressing here and what we don't see anywhere in scripture are examples of women in a pastor-elder type position in God's word. And Paul goes on to give reasons for it in verse 13. Again, these are God's reasons, all right? Which is what's most important because he made us and he knows. It says in verse 13, for or because God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve, or the order man and woman were created reflected the order of authority that was to be in a marriage discussed further in Ephesians five twenty-one through 33, as the husband was given the role to be the leader in the household. Again, not because of inferiority, but somebody has to be the one that is the final decision maker. Show me a company that has two CEOs and I'll show you a company that never gets anything done. Because inevitably, you're not going to agree on everything. And somebody has to be the one that makes the final decision. And that responsibility has been given to men in the marriage. And if you go in the church and you put a a, a husband and wife both into pastoral roles where they're in leadership making decisions, it causes disorder in that marriage relationship. And I have seen this practically proved to be true in friends of mine that are in different denominations where they operate as husband and wife and pastors at the same time, where they get a disagreement and then nothing, it's very difficult to come to a consensus on the best way to move forward because that disorder has been created in something that God meant to be orderly. And Paul gives another reason in verse 14. He says, "'It was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived and the sin was the result.' Now, if you're familiar with that account of Eve being deceived in the garden by Satan in Genesis 3, you know it was this temptation to be godly or like God that led to her eating the fruit. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing as it leads to a desire to know God at a very intimate and personal level and experience his presence in worship, to love him with all your heart. And so women thrive in those things, but it also is a characteristic that leaves women more susceptible to certain temptations by the enemy that most certainly men could be susceptible to, but not as easily as women would be. So as such, God in his perfect wisdom, again, has assigned this role of pastor elder to men, having something better in mind for the woman that he created. And Paul talks about what that is in the next verse. In verse 15, he says, but women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Now that Greek word used for saved here is sozo, which means the fullness of God's blessing. So what is being said here is that women will experience the fullness of God's blessing through raising children, whether that be their own or other people's children's or like lives that they're involved in somehow. This being one of the unique, specific things God has tailorly made women to accomplish for him. Now, that doesn't mean women can't have leadership roles. It doesn't mean they can't work. It doesn't mean they can't have a career or a job. It doesn't mean any of that. But what God's saying is that it should never come at the cost of interfering with the goal of mothering and raising your kids which obviously is something each woman has to look at depending on what their life circumstances are and, and how they can juggle things or whatnot. That's something between you and the Lord. And it's no coincidence that Paul's pointing this out in this letter to a church where women were trying to find fulfillment in something other than raising their children, spiritual authority and leadership being the specific struggle with some of the women in this church. He's wanting to help them find true blessing and fulfillment that God desired for them in something that they were made to do and that they were neglecting. Women have been given the unique opportunity to basically have a significant role in teaching their kids about Jesus. And I think any one of us would agree that there's nothing greater in this life than leading someone to Christ. How much greater is that feeling when it's your own kids that you're leading to walking to Christ? That's the blessing that he's talking about here. And then on a practical level, one thing that I've just learned since I took over as lead pastor here almost five years now and, and seeing my own wife and how she, the difficulties she has in handling some of the things that I have to handle as a pastor that she's not called to, but that she's become aware of in First Peter 3, 7, where it talks about wives being, um, it says live with your wives in an understandable way or, or try to understand, um, them because they are the the weaker vessel again this isn't inferiority but basically what's being discussed here is that women have emotions they have feelings they handle things differently than we do and i don't think anyone in here would disagree with that if you being honest that we're not wired the same way men and women but seeing the the heartache and the hurt that uh, certain things have an effect on my wife that maybe I have tougher skin and I'm able to kind of just push through and just get over, like has made me more sensitive to just realizing that, man, I need to protect my wife from some of this stuff because she's not called to deal with it. I am. And made me more aware of how like, wow, she 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 would not do well in dealing with these things that I have to deal with regularly as a pastor. Seeing how hard they are for her to, to in the devastation, the, the different dis, um harmful things that result in her life. So that's another practical role. So this role of elder, it's appointed by God to men, but not just any men. As we're going to see, Paul gives a a list of specific godly characteristics that they must possess. And it says here in verse one, it's a noble task, or some of your translations say it's a good work to oversee God's people. And I like that because leadership in God's church, it's not so much about titles um, or honor and glory, but It involves work, lots and lots of work if you want to do it well. But on the flip side, it's good work as meaning that it brings joy and happiness to your life in a way that only it could because nothing is going to bring you as much joy and happiness as the things that God has made you to do for him in his glory. Amen? Amen. So it's a good work, all right? So it's totally worth it. And it it goes on to, um, or Paul goes on now, he's going to list some specific qualifications for elders that already should be apparent in anyone appointed to this position. And I want you to notice that they all have to do with character, not performance, again, which is opposite of what the world would say, right? The uh, the world would want somebody that's got talent and skills, but not God is, he is the one that's behind that work. He's the one that's empowering us. He is the one that wants all the glory so people can see him and see their need for him, not their need for you in their lives. So it's the opposite. What he wants is just somebody that is gonna be willing and submitted and surrendered in his, his will and relying on him so that he can show himself strong through them, all right? And so all these qualifications are really, they amount to godly character that God is looking for in people so that he can use them the way he wants, all right? So it says in verse two, therefore an overseer, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So again, I want to clarify right at the beginning here that that you have to be absolutely perfect if you're going to be... No, that's that's not it at all. Okay, that's not what's being said here because if you had to be perfect to be in leadership in God's church, not one of us would ever be qualified for it, okay? So that's not what's being said, but rather what he's saying is that these are characteristics that are regularly reflected in somebody called to this in their lives. Their inward heart of wanting to live for the Lord is demonstrated outward regularly or consistently. It's not like saying one thing and then living contrary to it is a pattern in their life. And on a side note, the qualifications here, as I mentioned this kind of at the beginning, but they're valuable for every person, not not somebody just aspiring to be an elder in God's church. These are godly characteristics that are fruits of the Spirit. These are things that should be reflected in all our lives as God conforms us to the image of His son, because ultimately they're who Jesus is, okay? So they're applicable to everyone in here. So let's go through these qualifications one by one. The first being above reproach or blameless. Now, reproach is... Is, is basically to give somebody a reason to disapprove of you through your speech or actions. And, and in the context of Scripture, it's basically because you have failed to reflect God's Word in your life or follow what God's Word says. Now, it's not that people disapprove of you just because they don't like you or they have an opinion about something. That's Nobody can live up to people's expectations. That's not what it is. It's looking through the lens of Scripture— and that you're not giving them a reason because of your disobedience to it to have something negative to say against God and his church. And again, the, the idea is consistency, a consistent life of integrity, of doing what's right, not preaching one thing and doing something other, and giving people a reason to stumble or think negatively of you in, in God's church. Also, being above reproach means considering others before yourself, or sacrificial service, as we talked about last week. And sometimes what that means is not doing things that maybe you have the liberty to do because they're not sinful, but because they could potentially be misconstrued or perceived wrongly by people or cause them to stumble. Paul talks about that in depth in Romans 14, 13 through 23. One example in my own life of this as a pastor is that I try to be very careful of my interactions with women other than my wife is I would never want to be seen as somebody that's flirtatious or even potentially giving somebody the opportunity to think that I had some sort of inappropriate relationship with another woman. So as such, I I avoid one-on-one meetings with women or I try really hard to do that. And if they're absolutely necessary, then they have to be in a public place where lots of people are around. If if a woman needs prolonged biblical counsel, I'm going to either refer her to her husband because 1 Corinthians 14.35 tells us that's who you're supposed to seek first for biblical counsel. Or I'm going to refer her to a godly woman because, quite frankly, I'm a man and I do not think the same. And she is going to be able to be ministered to better by a godly woman. Um, And then any correspondence that I have with other women is going to be through text or email or social media. It's going to be documented and it's going to be... um, so that, you know, basically other people can look at it, including my wife, and it's going to be kept as formal as possible. And some might say, well, that sounds like you're just being overcautious. And thank you if that's your opinion. Because I would rather be overcautious than, in a sense, give somebody the wrong idea or allow a situation where the wrong feelings could develop and be entertained. Um, and quite frankly, when it comes to sin, I don't think the Bible believes you can be overcautious. It actually tells us in Second 2 Timothy 2.22 that you should run or flee from like sinful lust, like youthful lust. Like the idea is like you should get the heck away from anything sinful or don't even go close to it, all right? So there is no such thing as overcautious. And and there's just a very well-known pastor um, that just had to resign recently because he had an inappropriate relationship through text with another woman, or at least what was deemed inappropriate by other people. And he had to step down. And that hurt and that devastation that's coming to those people in that church, maybe his wife and kids, I most certainly can bet that when he was having those texts or whatnot, he didn't go into that intending to do that. But that's what it turned into. And so that's why you don't go anywhere near that stuff. You, you stay above reproach. You do you cut things off before they could ever even start, all right? Being cautious, And so that's one of the attributes that talks about. Also says you have to be the husband of one wife. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean you have to be married um, as Paul wouldn't have been qualified to lead God's church then. Doesn't mean if you're disqualified automatically if you've been divorced within the framework of of the Bible of where it says the divorce, if the adultery has happened, is allowable. It doesn't mean that if your spouse has passed away and you've been remarried that you can't be an elder. But the idea is that They are a man committed to their spouse or to the biblical principle or covenant of marriage between a woman and a man, and there's nothing in their life that would infer anything differently. Um, The third thing says sober-minded. The idea is someone that's able to think clearly and with clarity, letting God's word guide their actions and their speech rather than their feelings and whereas it doesn't mean you can't have a sense of humor it does mean that you can be serious about things that where it's warranted to be serious and a case can be made here as well for somebody that's not under the influence of drugs or alcohol or that basically have their thinking impaired because you have to be able to give clear and concise counsel and this being one of the reason that i choose not to drink alcohol at all is if i'm buzzed and my thinking is impaired at all, then I'm not being sober-minded. And honestly, there's no definitive way to know when you've crossed that line, and I don't want to take the chance. Again, I want to be overly cautious there. Um, the fourth thing, self-control, or somebody that's able to control themselves and not react out of emotion. Galatians 5.23 self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. So it's somebody that's regularly under the control or surrendered to the Spirit instead of their flesh, if you haven't figured it out yet, a big part of following Jesus is learning not to let your feelings and your emotions guide you, but to hold those up to Scripture and let, your, let Scripture guide or correct, if necessary, your feelings and emotions, right? So self-control is that moment when your flesh wants to do something, and the Holy Spirit's telling you in your mind, no, don't do that, because that's not what God says, and you're able to restrain and hold yourself back from doing that thing. And this is being a characteristic that I look at closely in someone that has the potential to be an elder, because quite frankly, when you move into a leadership position, you have a lot more interaction with people in the church. And with that will come a lot more hard situations to deal with and a lot more potential to react the wrong way and offend and hurt people. And so you've got to be somebody that has, it has self-control. Regularly or consistently in your life. The fifth thing, uh, they have to be respectable or a person viewed by others to be good, proper, right standing according to God's word. Somebody that has a good reputation in the church and outside the church, in the community for that matter. They have to be hospitable, somebody that makes other people feel welcome. Or maybe you're somebody that likes to hang out with people or have them over for dinner or have them over for coffee. Um, it means that somebody in this position can't. Be a hermit that doesn't want anything to do with God's people. And I've heard some people sometimes that are in elders, pastor roles, or they desire that. And they're like, well, I'm just called to be a teacher of God's word. That's what I really gifted at. I'm not really somebody that likes to be around God's people. And I'm like, okay, well, so sorry. Here's the thing. It's like, if you want to do this position well, they both have to be there. You have to be somebody that can teach the word, but also somebody that is a shepherd and is available to hang out with God's people. And here's the thing, God wouldn't tell you to be this way if he wasn't going to equip you to be that way. So maybe you're not naturally hospitable, but you need to trust God to let you or teach you to be hospitable, okay? Uh, The seventh thing, able to teach, um, or basically have enough of an understanding of God's word that they're able to explain it and defend it, whether that be one-on-one with somebody or in a, 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 a group setting, like where they're teaching a Bible study or teaching something like this. Now, what isn't a requirement is that you're some polished presenter or gifted speaker by any means. And this is a misconception that has kind of slept or like slipped into some of the church where it's believed that you have to have some dynamic speaker or somebody that has a doctorate from a seminary in order for anyone to get anything out of God's word. Let us never forget. That the power or what God works through is His Word Himself. All right. So whoever is presenting it, if they're being faithful to present the Word, God is the one that is going to change people and save people through that. That's what Romans ten seventeen says when it says, "So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the words of Christ." No, that's not what it says. It says through hearing through the Word of Christ. All right. The power is in the Word, and Paul. He's one of the people, of all people, because we look at him and we think like, wow, what a gifted guy. But he's like, no, actually, I'm not like some polished speaker. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So he himself is basically saying like, no, 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 like there was nothing special about me. I just kept it simple. I kept it focused on Jesus. I taught the word so that God could show his power through the word and change you. And I didn't mess anything up. And that's the right stance to take. And honestly, one of the things that has been super encouraging me as a pastor, because I used to be, those that know when I first started, I was a lot more nervous up here, but I just saw no matter matter how bad I felt it went or how bad I thought I tanked the message, that God still faithfully spoke through his word. And so my confidence didn't grow myself or my presenting ability, it grew in the word of God, all right? And God working through that word. And what I've found is some of the the messages I feel went the worst are the ones where God speaks the most powerfulness or most powerfully to people. And so it's true. It's what Paul says. In our weakness, he's strong. He shows himself, okay? So that's important to understand too. Uh, verse 8, not a drunkard. Now, some of your translations might say not given to wine. And the idea is not to be addicted to alcohol. Now, where this verse doesn't prohibit church leadership from drinking alcohol Here's what I like to point out. It clearly discourages it, okay? And the Bible clearly states that it's not wise for those in leadership to partake in alcohol. Proverbs 31, four through five is one example. It says, it's not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. The idea there is that they can't think clearly and they're not administering truth in, in grace properly because they're inhibited by alcohol. So this qualification of being sober-minded also goes along with this qualification as well. It, as well. And again, my personal conviction is that I don't drink. And again, I would never tell somebody, you know, the Bible says you can't do this at all. Um, but my personal conviction is that because I want to err on the side of caution and I want to be ready at any moment to give counsel and not take the chance that my mind is jaded in any way or I don't have clear thinking, all right? And so that's why I do that. So it's a a liberty I'm willing to forsake or sacrifice because the Lord has asked me to do this position and I want to do it well. might not be the same for you, but that's for me. And the Bible clearly warns that, you know, this is something that isn't wise. And so I listen to that. Verse nine, or sorry, the ninth thing. It says, not violent, but gentle. This goes with the idea of being self-controlled. The idea is that somebody doesn't react with violence uh, publicly or Privately, the 10th thing, not quarrelsome. This also goes along with the idea of being self-controlled. Is it somebody that doesn't look to argue with people just for the sake of being right? This doesn't mean you're never gonna have a confrontational conversation with somebody, especially if you're addressing sin and they're not receiving the truth of God's word. But what it does mean is that you're not arguing about opinions and speculations just because you feel like you have to be right in what's being discussed, all right? Um, Maybe you've met people before that they, they just feel like no matter what you say, they've got to have an argument or in a different opinion because they just want to argue and they want to prove their point, all right? And Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 2.14. He says not to quarrel about words uh, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. In essence, he's saying don't get involved in debates or arguments with people about opinions or speculations because if that's the focus— It's going to ruin or it's going to it's going to upset the hearer and they're not it's going to do more harm than good all right the only thing worth talking about is god's word and like i often tell you guys you don't ever have to feel the need to convince somebody that god's word is true whether they believe it or not guess what it's true they're he's right they're wrong and god's a big boy if you want to take it up with god you're welcome to i don't need to defend him he can defend himself but that's the, the surety we have in God's word. We stick to it and we know that it's all truth, all right? So not quarrelsome. Uh, the 11th thing, not a lover of money. The idea is somebody that is not greedy, as if you love money, inevitably it's going to corrupt your decisions and distract you from the Lord and his will in your life. Jesus says this in Matthew six twenty four. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. It's either or, all right? One's gotta be the priority and it's gotta be God if you wanna serve him. Jesus also said in Matthew six twenty one, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So if you want your devotion to totally be toward God in, in, in accomplishing his will in your life and doing what his purpose is in his church, then your devotion or your treasure has to be completely in Christ. Um, verse four, says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, our true character is displayed best at home with our families who we're most comfortable with. You guys agree with this? That might be convicting, but that should be convicting. But that's, that's the truth, all right? Because it's easy to come here on a Sunday or when you're hanging around with a bunch of other Christians who are supposed to be holy and act a certain way, but how do you act when you're at home? And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying that basically these godly characteristics should be demonstrated first and foremost with your family at home, all right? Now, again, what he's not saying is that you have to be the perfect spouse or you have to have the perfect kids, all right? And and, and we need to be really careful when he's talking about here of your household being in order and stuff to qu- try to quantify that and say what that looks like. Because if, if it had to be perfect, then none of us, including me would be, uh, would be qualified. And, 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 like, and the other thing is like, I was just talking to somebody about this at our home group on Thursday. Cause they were like, they were like, oh yeah, your, your family looks so perfect out in public. And I'm like, oh yeah. But like when we get home, I'm like, my kids know how to act when they're out in public, but when we get home, it's like, open up the cages and let the animals out. It's like, they're full of testosterone. They got to run crazy, all right? So it's like, our house is a whole different thing. Now, not in a sinful way. I mean, they get disciplined when it's sinful, but it's like, the appearances aren't what they look like when when you're around everyone else, okay? But, so we're not talking about perfection here, but the idea is that your family is always, it's always, the Lord never is gonna ask you to neglect your family, all right? That's your first ministry, okay? So these, these qualities should be reflected at home, first and foremost, if that is the fact. If your wife and kids, if your spouse and your family is your first and foremost primary ministry, these things won't be neglected at home. And that's the idea of keeping your house in order. Basically, if there's neglect at home, then you're not even qualified to be a leader in God's church. You need to take care of business there first, and then you can you can shepherd over God's people. So a godly leader prioritizes his ministry and his family first. And those characteristics are displayed with his wife and kids consistently. Verse 6, it says, He must not be a recent convert, or some translations say novice, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. So the idea is that you don't want people to come into this position that are newly saved or they're spiritually immature in some way and this being for their own good because basically it'll allow uh pride um in god or the enemy to use that pride to tempt them into sin so it's not for their good and paul tells us in first timothy five twenty two, never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader and that's something that we uh, is, is a church, we've always followed as long as I've been in leadership here. We are never quick to lay hands on people. We want to observe. We want to pray. We want to let God make it clear who he wants to be leaders in his church. Verse 7, it says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So the characteristics mentioned above should be visible, again, to not only us in the church, but we're the same person outside in the world in our jobs, as we're coaching teams, like sport teams in school, whatever it might be. But um, we're exemplifying these same characteristics and we have a good reputation even amongst unbelievers. And now he goes into the section talking about deacons, all right? And again, all these characteristics have to do with godly character. And the word here for deacon that we're going to see literally translates into servant. So that's what a deacon is. Somebody that is specifically called to serve the needs of God's Church. And let us not forget, every single one of us is called to be a servant of God, right? Jesus says in Mark ten, forty three through forty five, But whoever be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man can came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So whether you're a pastor, elder, deacon, kids ministry worker, greeter at the door, we're all called to serve. Every single one of us, all right? It's not just a deacon, but this is a specific role God has appointed or called people into in the church to serve the needs of the church. And we see in Acts 6, 1 through 6, the appointment of deacons by the apostles. Basically, they have this distribution of food with widows in the church that they're having to take care of, and it's, it's causing them to neglect from their role in teaching the word in prayer, and prayer. And, and so they say, hey, church, you guys need to appoint some guys from yourselves that in Acts 6-3 are of good repute or good reputation, full of the spirit and uh, full of wisdom, like biblical wisdom, who ultimately, after the church picked those people that fit those qualifications, the elders would look over those people and make sure they met them and there wasn't any disqualifying stuff and then they'd appoint them into those positions. And it says in Acts 6-7, the result of this, of basically them appointing deacons to serve the needs of the church so that the elders could focus on the, teaching the word in prayer was that the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So basically, the word of God was able to go out in greater increase and people were getting saved, like increasingly. And so this is the model that we follow in this church as well, the same model that we see here in the way we appoint Elders or deacons, all right? Verse eight says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Now, by using that word likewise, I like Paul's basically saying these qualifications for the deacons, they're similar elders. These roles are equally important um, within the church. They're not about status. It's just about calling. Um, as you typically see those called to be deacons, serving that role long before they ever get the title to do so. As my pastor used to tell me, elders eld and deacons Deek." It's just, they're just doing what God has already appointed them and called them to, and then it's recognized by the people around them. So let's go through these qualifications really quick. It says in verse one, they must be dignified, or the idea is that they're respected by other people because of how they reflect God and his word in their lives. Uh, number two, they're not double-tongued. The idea here is that there's somebody that speaks truth consistently, not somebody who just says one thing and then goes and says something else or they murmur and complain behind people's backs. Um, Number three, they're not addicted to much wine. It's the same as for elders. Um, It doesn't say they can't have alcohol, but it definitely is discouraging it because for the same reasons, it can impair your judgment or compromise your ability to minister to people. Um, The fourth thing, not greedy for dishonest gain. It's the same as idea for elders where it says that you can't be a lover of money. Deacons shouldn't be serving in this position for some sort of personal gain. Basically, being a deacon is never about personal glory. And quite frankly, you find that out really quick because you're usually behind the scenes doing things that nobody ever see. It's about doing things for the glory of God, getting things done so God's word can go out and church can happen. Because they're the ones doing everything that are making that possible but it's not about self-glory. Um, it says in verse nine, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The idea there is that you're not somebody that just knows God's word, but you don't live it. And therefore you have um, conviction because of your life not being right with God. It's somebody that understands God's word and wants to live it to their greatest ability possible, looking to God to help them so their conscience is clear. There is no covered up sin in their life or whatnot. They're open and honest about everything they struggle with and they're seeking God to live rightly. That's kind of the idea. Uh, Verse 10, and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The idea there is similar to elders in that you don't wanna put somebody in this position that's a newer believer or somebody that isn't spiritually mature. Um, As mentioned before, just let, they should be somebody serving Um, practically as a deacon long before they ever get the title, and then it's recognized that, hey, there's this calling on this person's life because they have continually been exhibiting these qualities. Verse 11, it says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. So the original wording here can be translated, wives likewise must be these things or women likewise must be these things which makes it hard to know for sure whether Paul's referring to female deacons or the wives of male deacons as the wording can permit either or and we do see an example in Romans 16:1 of what uh, Paul either formally recognizes as a deaconess or basically just recognizes because of her general service to the church he says in Romans 16:1 I commend to you our sister Phoebe a servant of the search of syn, uh, syncrea. Now that word servant is the same word used for deacon, So it literally translates to deaconess. So as such, women that meet these qualifications that we see here could be considered for this position as well. Now, whether he's referencing the wives of men or women deacons themselves, both of them have the same qualifications that are required. They must be dignified again. Uh, they, they need to be respected by those around them for how they reflect God in their lives, um, they're not slanderers, or they can't be women that gossip or talk negatively about people. Like basically, they aren't known as that. Uh, they're sober-minded. Again, they need to be able to think clearly and with clarity, letting God's word guide their actions and speech rather than their feelings. And then they're faithful in all things. And the idea is there's consistency in their life with Jesus. It's not just coming to church Sunday and then the rest of the week living for the world. You see this consistency in wanting to live for the Lord in all areas of their lives. Verse 12, it says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. So this idea is the same as for elders in verses two, four, and five, that they're devoted to one wife or the biblical principle of marriage to one woman and that they demonstrate the godly characteristics laid out here first and foremost at home or that ministering to their family is a priority now it should also be said that it's important that husbands and wives whenever you step into a leadership role in the church and this is really for any any role even a service role whatever it might be that you guys are of one mind that you have unity because a it it creates a lot of opportunities for division if there isn't unity and both knowing that this is what God wants and you guys are in unity going into it. And then also the support from your spouse, either way, whoever's in that role, husband or wife, the support from your spouse is critical for you to perform the ministry God's called you to effectively because whether they know it or not, they're indirectly supporting you and the things they're taking care of because you're not there to support them because you're doing that ministry. The things my wife does and taking care of our household, and taking care of our kids, and taking care of finances. All the other numerous things she does are what allows me to minister to the church. And so therefore, any crowns I'm getting for what I'm doing are equally shared with her because of what she's doing enabling me to do this, because we're of one mind in what God has called us to do. Amen? So that's important, all right? I also tell people, never leave your family behind in anything God's calling you to. God would not expect you to do that. Certainly there's certain things that your family won't be able to participate in, but my 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 um, counsel is always like, involve your kids and wife or involve your husband and kids, whatever, either way, in as much as you can in whatever the Lord is calling you to and do it as a family, all right? My kids love coming to church. They've always loved coming here to serve and be a part of what the Lord's doing. And I want to encourage that because how else are you, what is the better way to see how real Jesus is than serving him? That's why we serve him. Because we see God do things through us that we couldn't do on ourself in our own power. And we can see how real he is. So I absolutely want to involve my family in as much, much things as I can. So it blesses me when the different people serving in roles here are involving their kids with them, You know, whether it's bringing their kids to help with the deacon stuff or bringing their kids to help with them in kids ministry, whatever it might be. I love it because that that is what we should be doing is, is in developing other people's gifts and allowing them to be a part of, of the work God's doing through us together, amen? All right, last it says in verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons, they gain a good standing for themselves or a good reputation and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So in serving as a deacon, there's a promised blessing right here that comes with doing it well and as Jesus is reflected in their lives. Basically, it's going to lead to, number one, if you serve the Lord well, you're going to have a good reputation with the people around you, which stands a reason because people like being served. They're blessed by being served. So people will think highly of you. And then the other thing is you'll have a great confidence in Jesus and his faithfulness, as you see him work through your, you, you might be doing something simple, and you see it bless the socks off people, or even you know just that understanding of knowing that the simple things of you know cleaning the church or taking out the trash, that is what allows church to happen, so people can be in here and be saved or be ministered to and and, and healed from brokenness or, or find that longing satisfied that they're looking for. All of it contributes to that. And so you just get to see Jesus work through what even in your mind might be a simple task and you get to see his glory in your life. And you, see you it produces this confidence in him and how real he is, all right? And even though the, a lot of the tasks for deacons might go unnoticed, here's the thing. God doesn't miss anything, all right? And so because of that, in all of their consistent faithfulness week in and week out, I'm convinced that there's gonna be deacons with greater rewards than me or anyone else in the church because... They've just been faithful for so long, just doing what God asked them to do. Amen? All right. So here's what we get to do as a church family now. I'm going to pray before we dismiss. so Don't get too excited. But uh, uh, I'm going to end service now because I don't want you guys to forget about this. So if this is your home church, if this is your church family, All right, we don't do formal membership here. If if you say, this is my church family, then this is your church family, all right? But if this is your church family and you've been here like long enough to like recognize people and see people and get to know people and observe people and be able to recognize these qualifications that we went over today for deacons, then we have some slips that our deacons, a couple of our current deacons are gonna be back at the door as you guys leave and are dismissed that they're gonna hand out to you. And they're gonna have a reminder of these qualifications on there, but I'm gonna ask you to pray and pick some people that fit these qualifications. And we'll once we get those after the next couple of weeks, when you guys bring these back, then we'll pray as elders over these names and, and, and make sure that we don't see anything that's disqualifying or anything, they fit these bills. And then we'll talk to those people about praying to step into that role, amen? a privilege we get to be as a church because this is how we see it happen in the bible and this is how god works through that and then those guys get to operate and the word gets to go out and people get to get saved amen amen all right so let me pray lord god thank you so much for just this reminder today on uh the these roles uh of in your church of leadership in in in, in elders and deacons and um just the, the purpose of these ultimately so that your word can increase and that people can be saved, Lord. Um, these are specific roles that you've called for within your church and you've gifted certain people uh, to accomplish things like equipping the body and taking care of the body and feeding the body and serving the body and and so that your work can be accomplished. So Lord, we want your work to be accomplished. We don't want anything to do the way that and we know that there's specific people that you have this, this calling in these giftings on. And we want to recognize that, which they're already operating in so that Lord, we can give the title so there can be an even greater increase of just blessing as they faithfully just do what you've already gifted them and called them to do. So Lord, lead us in that as a church. And may we just continue to do the things all of us have been called to by you and operate in those giftings. And seek all these, these godly characteristics that we see here, Lord, knowing that these things reflect you, Jesus, and that's who we're being conformed to, and that's who we want to look like. So the rest of the world can see you through us and know you as we do, Lord. So be with us and lead us in the choosing of the people for this position. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.